0: Today, I want to uh, speak about two key prophecies we find within the Word. One is relating to this woman, and uh, the other is to the beast, both found in the book of Revelation. Now, I'll admit, I'll admit I'm pretty, um, pretty excited about this message. I, we were here recently looking at the book of Revelation, and for me, it was almost like an epiphany, you know, that, that light bulb went off. and so we're going to look at that, and this, this topic really intrigues me, and I think there's, there's a lot to it. Now, when it comes to uh, these two prophecies, I, I will admit, and certainly acknowledge there's many, many different views on this and many different interpretations with these, but again, I think you know we can certainly see some indications in Scripture. You know, over the years, we've talked a lot about Islam, a lot about Islam, and how Islam may certainly fulfill the prophecy of the beast, of Revelation, but we've never really focused on this woman, the woman that we find in Revelation 17. So today, we're going to do both. We're going to focus on the woman and also the beast of Revelation. Now, as I mentioned during our, our recent Bible study on the book of Revelation, we're, we're in Ezekiel now, and, but we were uh, focused just recently on the book of Revelation. We were looking at Revelation 17, and again, it was a, it was a light bulb that went off, an epiphany, and uh, I, I really think there's something to this. Long story short, I believe the Bible indicates or shows that the woman of Revelation 17 may indicate the Roman church, while the beast indicates Islam, or radical Islam. And we're going to see, I think, how that can work. Now, you might be asking, you know, how is it possible for them to coexist? But, you know, we're already seeing indication of that, and we'll see that. You know, we'll see some ways the Roman church is acknowledging and and, and accepting and even embracing Islam and, and uh, certainly Islam is, is uh, accepting that as well to an extent. So let's open up Scripture, and we're going to start with Revelation 17. Revelation 17, Oh, forgot my, uh, I was pretty proud of that, by the way, so I'll just leave that up for just a moment. You can look at that slide. The woman and the beast of Revelation. So uh, anyway, there's the uh, main slide there. Okay, Revelation 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. It says, And there came... One of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me. That's kind of interesting too, these angels that were pouring out these vials of plagues. These this one angel is now communicating with John of Patmos. And it says he talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show you unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sets upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit under a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written. Isn't that interesting, by the way? A name on her forehead. You know, we know that the saints, they too will receive a name on their forehead. Of course, we know from Revelation 14.1 that that name is going to be Yahweh's name. But here we find that this this, uh, woman also has a name on her forehead. I believe it's obviously satanic. It's of the evil one. But here's what it says. It says, "Written, mystery Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Yahshua. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And admiration, by the way, that's not a term of endearment. He was, you know, John was just amazed at what he was seeing here. That's all it means. It says, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of this woman and of the beast that carrieth her which hath the seven heads and ten horns. Now, there are several points here we need to uh, consider. To begin with, we see a description of this woman riding on this beast. So we have a woman riding on the beast. Now, number one, it's important to realize that there's a separation between the woman and the beast. The woman is not the beast, and the beast is not the woman. Now, again, I believe that the woman here may represent the Roman church. while the beast that she rides on represents Islam, radical Islam. We're going to see evidence of that, I think, as we go through. Also, I think the fact that the woman is riding on the beast shows a connection, shows some sort of coalition alliance between this beast and this woman, this agreement. And I think we'll see this agreement as the end of this age becomes closer. Now, you know, I... I think we're already seeing some of this occur within the Roman church. And, and really, even beyond the Roman church, I think we're also seeing it within Christianity at large, this, this desire to accept and excuse Islam as, as something peaceful, as something acceptable. But it's not. But let me give you some examples. There's a uh, organization out there. It's called the Glenstone Institute. It's a great, great organization. I've used this multiple times. They, they really seem to have a lot of insight when it comes to Middle Eastern affairs and, and uh, points. But the article here is, Christian clergy welcomes Islam and church, then bows to it. Now, I'm not going to read the entire article. You can take a snapshot of this for those who like their iPhones or their mobile phones, or you can just simply write the article down. But Christian clergy welcomes Islam. That's the name of the article. So I would encourage you to go out to the Internet, look up the Glenstone Institute, read the entire article. They bring out many, many great points. I'm just going to share a few with you. So here's one. Last and this is all again from the article says last July for the first time during a mass in Italy a verse of the Koran was was uh, recited from the altar. Now this is in a, a Roman church. This is not in a mosque. The priest in the south of Italy enraged parishioners by dressing the Virgin Mary in a Muslim burqa for the for his church's Christmas nativity. Think you know? Think about the levels of wrong with that of, of, of that uh, act there. It says that these interfaith initiatives are based on the gradual elimination of Western Christian heritage in favor of Islam. So these think tanks, that's really what this organization is, they're seeing this trend. They're seeing this trend of, of the Roman church, and again, just Christianity at large, although I think the Roman church is somewhat leading the way here, of wanting to amalgamate or accept or embrace Islam the catholic clergy is probably disoriented by pope francis himself he was the first to allow the reading of islamic prayers and quran readings from the vatican the pope embraced religious relativism when it comes with islam he repeated that islamist violence is a work of a quote of quote a small group of fundamentalists who according to him have nothing to do with Islam. Now, again, there's many, many, many more points from this article, historical events, that's occurred here recently, showing that the Roman Church is embracing and I like how it says here, because I think it's true bowing down to Islam. This is not something that might happen or may happen here soon. This is happening now. And I think it's getting worse. Again, many, many people, they want to embrace, for some odd reason, they want to embrace this religion of violence and and pretend that it's fine, that there's no issues with it. Well, as we see here, Pope Francis has publicly embraced the Quran, has also defended Islam, by saying it's not a religion of violence, it's a religion of peace. But, you know, nothing could be further from the truth. I don't know how many of you have actually taken a course on Islam, studied Islam. But I'm here to tell you that Islam began with a sword. It propagated its message through the sword, through violence. And it continues to do the same today. It began with a sword. It it will also end with a sword. Now, based on what I see in the Bible, I believe, again, that there may be a trend where the Roman church, representing this woman may form some sort of coalitional league or agreement with Islam. And again, I think we're seeing that. I think we're seeing prophecy possibly being fulfilled right now in our day and age. So what further evidence do we find in Revelation 17 for Islam representing this woman? Or it says in Revelation 17, it says there there, that this woman sits on many waters, This woman sits so many waters. Now, according to verse 15 of Revelation 17, it says, and it, it interprets waters as peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So when it says waters, it's referring again to peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. You know, as we know, the Roman church represents multiple nations. It represents multiple ethnicities. It represents multiple languages. It represents multiple cultures. It is an international organization. According to Wikipedia, Yet, has a membership of 1.29 billion. 1.29 billion throughout this world. And that is just the Roman Church. That is not Protestants' faith. That is not a Baptist. That is not these other, uh, you know, the, the Church of England. That is the Roman Church. 1.29 billion. We also see here that this woman is responsible for spreading fornication, causing the earth, or the kings of the earth, it says, to commit fornication. Now, this word, fornication, comes from the Greek pernia. Now, pernia, for those who understand this or know this word, it's a very common word, it's a very broad word. Strongs defines this as harlotry, including adultery and incest, but it also says figuratively, idolatry. Now, I believe within the context here that the word idolatry, the definition idolatry would fit the best, that this is referring not to some sort of immorality, but but to false worship. Matter of fact, here's part of the definition we find from the Thayer's Greek lexicon. It says, quote, metaphorically, the worship of idols used of the defilement of idolatry. So we see here that this word fornication, pernia, can refer to immorality, but it can also refer to idol worship, can also refer to false beliefs. And again, I think that's what we see here. You know, we would all agree, I believe, when when we say that uh, no organization is more accountable for spreading apostasy than the Roman church. I mean, has, has anybody spread more apostasy and false beliefs than the Roman church? I don't think there's a single organization we could point to to say that this organization is more responsible when it comes to spreading false beliefs. You know, you look at their history, you know, whether it's Sunday or these pagan ideas. You know, the, the historians and the theologians will admit that when it comes to the Roman church, the policy always was to amalgamate, was to bring in, was to adopt these pagan beliefs. And sadly, most of the Protestant faiths went right along with it. There was no change. There was no desire. But the, the origin did not begin with the protestant religion the origin began with the roman church and they simply continued with it now we also see here that this this woman's responsible for the blood of the saints this woman's response responsible for the blood of the saints you know as we know the roman church has had a very long history when it comes to persecution when it comes to murder of believers mostly simply because they did not share the same theological view they did. Now, obviously, we don't see that as much now, but we certainly have seen it throughout history. For example, here's an excerpt from a book entitled History of the Rise and Influence of the Spirit of Rationalism in Europe. So here's what it says. It says that the Church of Rome has shed more innocent blood than any other institution that has ever existed among mankind will be questioned by no Protestant who has a competent knowledge of history. It is impossible to form a complete conception of the multitude of their victims, and it is quite certain that no powers of imagination can adequately realize their sufferings. Now, there's hundreds of quotes I could have pulled from, and I think historically this is accurate. Historically, we've seen a lot of persecution throughout the Roman Church. There's a very, very long history of persecution, especially for those who theologically disagreed with it. Something as common as uh, water baptism, immersion They would hunt you down at one point now in revelation 17 18 we find another, another clue as to this woman so let's read that revelation 17 verse 18 it says in the woman which thou sawest is that great city so we see that this woman is tied and symbolized by what this great city which reigns it says over the kings of the earth so number one this woman again represents a great city number two we see that this great city reigns, it says, over the kings of the earth. Now, for years, I've considered the possibility of this woman here representing New York City. After all, we know the UN there is located within New York City. It's a possibility, but the problem is, New York City doesn't fit with many of the other prophecies. For example, New York City is not responsible, in my opinion, for spreading the apostasy that we see in nominal worship. New York City is not responsible for that. That is certainly fits the Roman church much more. I also have a hard time seeing how New York City would be responsible for the blood of the saints, for the martyrdom of of Yahshua's saints. I I don't see that. I don't see how that fits. So based on these prophecies, I believe that the city of Rome is a much more likely fit, a much more likely candidate when you factor in these prophecies. We know that Rome is a very long and complicated history, We also know that within the modern city of Rome is the Vatican City, which, by the way, is a sovereign state for those who don't know. For those unfamiliar with the Vatican City, it's actually quite small. It's roughly 110 acres in size. I didn't realize it was that small. 110 acres in size, population of about 1,000. That's it. And it's, again, considered a sovereign state. Now, the city of Rome proper is about 496 miles in size, square miles, I should say, population of about 2.8 million. But when you consider the outlining uh, areas of the metropolitan city of Rome, we have a population of about 4.3 million. So the city of Rome is a very, very big place. Now, again, we see here prophetically that this great city, it says, will rule over the kings of the earth. Now, for me, I tend to view this more from a historical standpoint. We certainly don't see today the city of Rome ruling over the kings of the earth, but we know historically the city of Rome during the time of ancient Rome, and certainly during the papacy, that it has ruled over many, many, many kings. And some would argue today that the papacy continues to still rule over many of the kings. We find today, and certainly does exert great influence. But again, from a historical standpoint, we know that they ruled literally over nations. When the Roman church had the power I want to consider one more prophecy with this woman. It's found in Revelation 18, 8 through 19. A little bit of reading here, but just, uh, stay with me if you would. It says, therefore shall her plagues come in one a day. So we fee- see that at one point that this woman is going to suffer a great blow very quickly. Is says, death and mourning and famine. And she shall be utterly burned with fire. For strong is Yahweh Elohim who, judge her, who judges her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewail well her, a lament for her, when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment to come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her. For no man buyeth their merchandise any more, the merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and of pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, and of fine wood, and all manner of vessels of ivory, and all manner of vessels of most precious wood, of brass and iron and marble, cinnamon and odors, and ointments and frankincense, and wine and oil, and fine flour and wheat and Beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. And the fruit that they that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee. And all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee. And thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which are made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment. Weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as the trade by sea stood afar off. Notice that the ships, they can see this burning. And cried, when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her coast lines. For in one hour is she made desolate. So, what do we see here? Where number one, this great city is going to be judged, it says, in one hour, without warning, without hesitation, very quickly, we find here. Or number two, the merchants of the earth are made rich through her gluttony, through her wantiness, through, through her desires. You know, for me, this indicates that this great city will be a significant importer of goods. According to the encyclopedia.com, I was doing some research, and according to that source, the Vatican imports or exports nothing; it imports everything it perceives. We also see here in this prophecy that many of the exports here are, are, are ornate. It mentions uh, things like uh, ivory and precious wood and other things. And you know, when I think of ornateness, I certainly think of Rome, especially the Vatican, if those who have been there. Now, we also find evidence here that this great city may be positioned along a coastline. I, I think it's pretty obvious. I he describes here how the ships will stand afar off, mourning and lamenting, as they watch this city burn to the ground. So, where is Rome located? The city of Rome, or Rome, is 50 mile, 15 miles inland from the Tyrrhenian uh, Sea. 15 miles inland is pretty close. I think you can see a great sea or a great city burning from this distance. So I want to summarize some of the major points we've uh, looked at for this woman. And, you know, I'm not saying this for sure, but I certainly think it fits. It fits better than anything else I've really looked at. So what's some of the parallels between this woman and the Roman church? Well, number one, as we saw through the word, this woman sets so many waters. Now, according to Scripture, again, waters symbolizes nations, ethnicities, languages and we certainly know that the roman church is is a global organization what was it 1.29 billion i think was the membership of the roman church literally they're, they're all throughout the world number two this woman's responsible for spreading fornication again the greek word there is apostasy i believe it refers to false beliefs false worship I don't know of another organization more responsible for spreading apostasy than the Roman church historically. Again, it was the Roman church who, who brought in all these pagan ideas and then the Protestants simply accepted this and adopted it and continued along with it. Number three, the woman is guilty of the blood of many believers. Now, again, I don't know of any organization historically more guilty of persecution and martyrdom than the Roman church. I don't know too many Baptist. That's been doing what we find here, or other Protestant organizations. Number four, the woman is identified as a great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Again, when you look at it historically, what city has had more reign, more power, more authority, more of an impact than the, Roman, the city of Rome? And again, the city of Rome would represent the Roman church. I mean, you have it during Rome itself, before the papacy came to power, and certainly when the papacy was in power, it ruled over this earth, or most of this, much of this earth, I should say. We also see that this city is a major import of goods, including many that are ornate, elaborate. I think uh, Revelation 18 really focuses and drives that point home. And number six, the last one here, this city seems to be positioned along a coastline. Now, there's other cities, obviously, along the coast, so we, we can pick out, I think, Mecca maybe is along the coast, certainly New York City and, and other major cities. But, again, when you factor in all these prophecies, in my mind, the city that seems to be the best fit, because, again, Scripture says that this is a great city. The woman is a city. That's what Scripture says. It says it multiple times. The woman this woman is a city. And it rules, again, over the kings of the earth. When you consider all the prophecies, one that seems to fit the best, from my standpoint, is the Roman church. Now, again, based on Revelation 17, we know that this woman rides on this beast. And I've already said I believe that the beast represents Islam. Sometimes I say radical Islam. I, it's just Islam. I think just Islam is radical, period. I you know, those who, I know there's moderate Muslims out there, and I, 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 I agree with that. But those moderate Muslims don't understand their Muslim faith, because the Muslim faith is radical. They may not be radical, but I can assure you, if you study Islam, it is a radical faith. Now, we've already talked about how the Roman church is embracing Islam, and I would encourage you to go out and read that article, the full article, and, and do your own research. It's amazing. You know, I I think Pope Francis, I don't quite understand what he's doing, why he's doing it, but I do believe that he is trying to radically change the Roman church. And he has made efforts, serious, serious efforts, to embrace the religion of Islam. I want to transition now and focus on this beast. We talked a lot about the woman. Let's now focus on this beast that she rides on. Now, how do we know the beast represents radical Islam? Where do we find that? Where do we see evidence of this beast representing Islam. We actually, I think, see several signs within Scripture showing this connection, showing that the beast is likely Islam. And remember, I said it already once, but I'm going to say it again. Remember that the woman is not the beast and the beast is not the woman, right? They're two different things. The, the one sets upon the, upon the other, showing, I believe, support or, or maybe an agreement or coalition between the two, but they are not the same. So what is a beast? Well, you know, Revelation 17 is the key passage when speaking about the beast. But before that, i want to look at a few other passages in the book of Daniel, because Daniel really gives us a great foundation to build from. So there's going to be two passages in Daniel. First one is Daniel 2, starting in verse 32. Daniel 2. Now, you're going to have to pick, out, pick up your Bibles if, if you want, or, or simply listen. doesn't matter to me. But uh, I'm going to read this because there's quite a, quite a large section here to read. So uh, Daniel chapter two, and uh, we're going to pick it up here in verse thirty-two, and uh, we're going to go through verse forty-four. Okay, so Daniel two thirty-two it says the image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of clay and part iron. Of iron, or I'm sorry. Part of clay and part of uh, part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, that were of iron and clay, and break them into pieces. Then was the iron and clay and brass and silver and the gold broken to pieces together, and became alike the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carries them away. And no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, I'm not going to get into this. I'll explain it just a little bit here. This great stone uh, represents Yahshua, and it represents the kingdom. That when Yahshua comes, he's going to establish his kingdom, and all these other kingdoms are going to be wiped away. That's what we're seeing here. That's, what it, that's what this, the point of uh, this verse here, this great stone. And it's going to be a great mountain. You know, we're going to talk about it later, but mountain often represents kingdoms. And we know that Yahweh's kingdom is going to reign over all other kingdoms. We'll, we'll, we'll see that more. Anyway, verse 36, it says, This is the dream, and we will tell the interpretation thereof before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings. This is, by, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. For the Allah of heaven hath given thee a kingdom power and strength and glory. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beast of the field and the fowls of the heaven hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art his, this head of gold. And after thee shall arise another kingdom. So notice this, and we're going to talk about this, but notice the succession. After Nebuchadnezzar, after the kingdom of Babylon, another kingdom will arise. That's what we see here. It says, after you, not after necessarily him, But after the kingdom of Babylon, another kingdom is going to arise. So there's a succession there. Just keep that in mind. Inferior to thee, in another third kingdom of brass, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. And whereas I'll sauce the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it the strength of the iron. We'll talk about that more, but notice that it's a mixed bag there. It's partly strong, partly weak, partly divided. It says, For as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with my clay, and as the toes of the feet were part of iron and Part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas Alsace iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. And in the days of these kings shall the Ella of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to another people. To other people. But it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. So, the image we see here is based on a dream from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and it goes to Daniel for the interpretation of the dream, because he understood Daniel could interpret dreams that Yahweh gave him this ability. So, what exactly did Nebuchadnezzar see? What What do we see here from. This prophet Daniel, where he saw a metal man with a head of gold, chested arms of silver, belly billion thighs of brass, legs of iron, and then toes, ten toes, mixed with iron and clay. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar here that, number one, he represents the head of gold. So we know who represents the head of gold. That is Nebuchadnezzar. That is the Babylonian Empire, because again, Nebuchadnezzar, as a king, he represented Babylonia or the nation of Babylon. Now we also know prophetically that the uh, chest and arms of silver symbolizes the Medo-Persian Empire. You got the two arms, by the way, two arms probably represents the two, two different peoples that made up this empire: the Medes and the Persians. Now we also see here and know historically that the. Uh, Belly and thighs of brass symbolizes the empire of Greece. And that, lastly here, the two legs of iron, represents Rome. Now, what do you suppose we see two legs here for Rome? Is there any significance to this? Any, anything special about these two legs? Or there is, and a lot of people miss this, the two legs represents the two halves of Rome. You know, many people, they think of Rome, they think of the city of Rome, or they think of Western Rome where the problem is Rome was more than Western Rome. You had a Western Rome, and you had Eastern Rome. Now, we know that Western Rome, represented through the city of Rome, fell in 476 CE, but the eastern half, through Constantinople, actually named after Constantine, for those who aren't aren't familiar, this also became known as the Byzantine Empire also. But it went on for another 1,000 years, 1,000 years, until its defeat by the Ottoman Turks... In 1453. So Rome technically did not fall historically until 1453. The western half fell, but the eastern half continued. Again, for another thousand years. Now, the last thing we see here are ten toes. Ten toes, part of iron and partly clay, it says. Now, it's important to realize here that these ten toes are not historic. These ten toes are not historic. These ten toes are prophetic. They are pointing to the future. And we're going to see this more as we go through this message. Obviously here, the iron represents the strength and the, the clay represents weakness. And, you know, I think this is, uh, by the way, very indicative of what we see within the Middle East today. You know, they are partly strong and they are partly divided. And they are always at odds with one another. You know, we know that uh, Ishmael, is believed to be the father of the Arab people and the Bible says that Ishmael would be a wild man and that his hand would be against every man and I believe that this is precisely what we find within the Arab world that they are always at odds they are either fighting themselves or they are fighting an enemy but they are always in turmoil. I mean look at what we see in the Middle East today Syria has been a civil war for how many years? And so many other issues in the other countries. Where it also says here that these people, I'm going to read, it says, they mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever thought about the possible meaning, what, 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 what Daniel's trying to say there? Or here's what I believe this is saying. I believe that they're basically saying that they're going to spread out throughout the world. But they're not going to assimilate within the world. And that's precisely what we see within the, with the Arab people, with the Muslims. You know, they've migrated all throughout Europe. And now there's all these Sharia courts. You know, last time I heard, I think it was like 50 Sharia courts in, in England. I mean, that's just insane. They won't assimilate within culture. They have to have their own laws They have to follow their own ways. They refuse to assimilate. So I think that fits well with what we see within the Arab world today. Now, there's one more thing I want to point out here. It's important to notice, and we've already sort of talked something uh, something about this, but it's important to notice that we see a succession. We see a succession within this passage. You know, for example, we know that Babylon was defeated by who? The Persians, right? The Persians was defeated by? The Greeks, the Greeks was defeated by Rome. So we see a succession of empires. One would fall, one would rise. And we're going to see this here in just a few moments when we go to the book of Revelation, but I want to really impress upon you that pattern we see, because I believe we see the same pattern in Revelation 17, this concept of succession of empires, succession of empires. Now, again, we know that the ten toes here are prophetic. They have not come to pass yet, but they will, and they will with a man of sin. We'll see that in Revelation 17. Now, before looking there, I'm going to look at one more passage, Daniel chapter 7, 1-7. through 7. This is another prophetic passage from Daniel that, that really aligns well with what we find in Revelation. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. Daniel spake and said, I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second, like like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth, of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had another uh, upon the back of it, uh, four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped the residue with his feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And listen, it had, it says, ten horns. Ten horns. So what do we see here? We see here four beasts with different characteristics, different attributes. This is much of the same message we've already seen in Daniel 2. Four beasts here that represents four different nations, four different empires, starting with the Babylon. So let's take a few moments and consider each one. We'll look at each one, talk a little bit about the characteristics we find here. The first beast, it says, was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Now the lion here most... Scholars believe this represents a strength. I tend to believe this is probably true, the strength of the Babylonian Empire. And the wings of the, the, wings of the eagle symbolizes the, the, the quickness at which the Babylonian Empire spread. It spread very quickly, something it had in common really with the Grecian Empire. Where the second beast, is, it says, like a bear, and had three ribs in its mouth and devoured much flesh. Where again, the bear, I think, represents strength, courage, and the three ribs according to some, represents the three kingdoms that Persia conquered, and those would be Media, Lydia, and Babylonia. Now, the eating of much flesh simple simply refers to the destruction of the multiple kingdoms, nations, peoples that Persia conquered. I mean, Persia was a powerhouse. And, you know, not to get off course here, but Iran is Persian, and they know this they know that they were a great, great power at one point. And that's one reason why Iran wants the power, because they had it. They had it. They were a superpower, and they lost it. But this is Persia that we see here. Now, there was a third beast. It says like a leopard with four wings. Where the leopard here represents the speed of the... Grecian empires, it spread. Now we also see here this this number four, where the four here refers to the four divisions. You see, when Alexander died, his kingdom was split four different ways to four different generals. Never with the power, never with the might that Alexander the Great brought. Matter of fact, you know, he died at 32 years old. What he accomplished was just amazing at such a young age. But again, after his death, the kingdom was divided amongst four of his generals. Now the two, I don't know, from my perspective, the two most well-known are the, is the uh, Seleucus and the Ptolemaic. You know, so, uh, Seleucus uh, was given a Syrian Babylon, and Ptolemy was given uh, Egypt. And I believe he was even over Judea for some time until uh, the Seleucids uh, conquered that. What about this fourth beast? What do we know about this fourth beast? Some say that this fourth beast is Rome, or it says here that it's dreadful, it's terrible, strong, exceedingly, diverse, it's different, it's unique from all the others. We also see here that it has ten horns, ten horns. Now, I believe that these ten horns shows that this is not Rome. These ten horns, again, are prophetic. And we'll see that. They're, they're prophetic. So this fourth kingdom is not Rome. It is, it is a revived uh, empire that will be ruled by the anti-Messiah. Matter of fact, the, uh, Dr. Bollinger and his companion Bible says this. He says, quote, not Rome, for it has the ten horns when it is first seen. Moreover, these ten horns are not till the time of the end. This fourth kingdom where this fourth beast therefore belongs to the time of the end. So Bollinger recognizes here through these ten kings that this is not his story. This fourth beast is prophetic. This fourth beast is referring to the man of sin and what he will do. Now before uh, moving on, I want to point out just one more thing and that is again we see a succession of empires here. Just as we saw in Daniel 2 we see here in Daniel 7 the same thing. As we know Persia defeated Babylon, and Greece defeated Persia. And, of course, we know that Rome also, as we saw in chapter 2, defeated Greece. Well, let's now skip over to Revelation 17, verse verse 9, and read just a few verses here. It says, And here is a mind which hath wisdom, the seven heads, or seven mountains, on which the woman sits, so again, we see this woman here, this woman writing on this beast. It says, "And there are seven kings." So now we have seven kings, five are fallen. One is, and the others not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short space. And that, and the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. So we see seven, and then an eighth, which is of the seven. It says, and is of the seven, and it goes into perdition. So, so what does all this mean? Well, number one, we see here that the beast symbolizes seven mountains, seven mountains. What does mountain represent scripturally? What do we see? Well, mountain often represents government. You know, in Malachi, or not, not Malachi, Micah, Micah chapter 4, we see there in that passage, it says that Yahweh's mountain will be on top of all the other hills. And what that's saying is that Yahweh's kingdom will be above all the other kingdoms of this earth in the millennial reign. So we see here through scripture that mountain represents kingdom. And that's what we see here. Five kingdoms had fallen. One kingdom was. There would be a seventh. And there would be an eighth connected then to the seven. So do we have any idea who these or what these nations represent? Well, here's a chart from the Restoration Study Bible. It's one of my favorite charts in there. It says, uh, so seven kingdoms, the five who have fallen, as we um, believe here, would represent Egypt, Assyria, Neo, babylon Persia, and Greece. Now, there's an alternative view. I'll, I'll just mention it just uh, in passing later. So those are the five that had fallen, possibly. Now, the uh, sixth kingdom here got a little bit distorted. I don't know what's going on with these PowerPoints, but... It, it, it represents Rome. So the, the the six would represent Rome because we know, again, that Rome succeeded who? Rome succeeded Greece, right? Right. So Rome is the six. Now, this would also include the Byzantine Empire because, again, the Byzantine Empire, the eastern half, was part of Rome. And the seven, we believe, would represent the Ottoman Turks. I'll explain that in just a moment. So the five that had fallen, Egypt, Syria, Neo-Babylon, Persia, Greece, the one that was would have been Rome. The one that would then succeed Rome would be the Ottoman Turks. And then we know the eighth would come from the seventh, which in this case, we believe again, would correlate with the Ottoman Empire. Now there's an alternative view. Yeah, I had a phone call Guy watched one of my previous previous messages, and he he uh, said it was real intriguing this idea of succession. He he uh, was convinced that we were probably right with that, but he said, "What do you think though about what do you think this Seleucid and Ptolemaic empires fit in?" And he made the point that maybe instead of Egypt and Assyria, that you remove those, and you would add the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic empires after Greece, but before Rome. That makes sense. That may be the case. Again, it doesn't really change anything. That would be all historic, but certainly we see that from a historical standpoint, that the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic empires would fit, in and Rome obviously conquered that entire area eventually. Now, the sixth kingdom here is, is normally identified as Rome. There's not too many issues. Most people agree with that. It's, it's the seventh kingdom that, that a lot of people have an issue with, Ottoman, the Ottoman Turks. Most will say that these are the barbarians. Some will say that there may be popes. Um, some say that Rome just simply fell within, and uh, certainly all that is true to an extent. But what they forget about is that the Byzantine Empire continued after the western half of Rome fell. And uh, to me, that's a very pivotal point because as we saw in Daniel chapter 2, the, 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 the metal man has two legs, not one leg. It has a western and eastern half. And again, the eastern half continued again for a thousand years after the western half fell in 476 uh, CE. So the question is, who defeated Rome? Who really defeated the Roman Empire? Or again, as I've already explained before, it did not fall to the uh, barbarians. Certainly the western half may have. It was not continued on through the Roman church. No, no. What we find historically is that after the western half fell in 476 CE, the eastern half, again symbolized through Constantinople, the capital there, continued for another thousand years under the name the Byzantine Empire, which again was the eastern half of the Roman Empire. They were then defeated a thousand years later by the Ottoman Turks, which remained a superpower for 600 years before their defeat in World War I. And that's one reason why you see so much angst in Turkey today. You see, just like Iran would love to resurrect this great Persian empire, Turkey would love to resurrect this great Ottoman empire. All of these nations had these glory days, these days when they reigned supreme, when they were the, you know, they, they had the authority. That's why we see what we do. So based on this, we believe here again that the kingdom that would succeed the nation of Rome or the empire of Rome would be the Ottoman Turks. Now I want to share with you a book it's, uh, by a man named Walid Shabat. Some of you may be from there with us. I don't agree with everything he says, but he brings out a lot of great points. But he wrote a book. It's called God's War on Terror. And um, here's what he says. Whoa, the empire of the, uh, I'll read it as it is, the, the Antichrist will not be a new empire. It says, rather, it will be the revival of a previous great empire that will have suffered what the Bible calls a fatal head wound. I'm not going to read that today because of time, but if you want, you can go back to Revelation 13. It talks about how one of the heads was wounded, but it was healed. Well, that wound, the, the, the head that was uh, wounded and, and healed is He's saying, and, and I agree, that this is the Ottoman Empire. It says this empire is the Islamic Ottoman Empire, which replaced the Roman Empire after the fall of its remaining eastern section. That's on page 81. Now, before we talk about the, uh, what he says here, I want to talk a little bit about the author. So who is this Waleed Shobat? Well, number one, he was born to an Islamic father and a Christian mother. And, um, you know, as a, as a boy and as a teenager, it's my understanding, or I've seen interviews uh, of, of this man And he he says he identified as as an Islamic terrorist. I mean, he was an extremist. Now, something clicked, obviously. This man eventually converted to uh, Christianity. I think he's a Roman Catholic, but converted to Christianity, left the uh, religion of uh, Islam. Now, because of this, I believe that this guy really has a unique perspective. You know, he doesn't look at prophecy from a European perspective or standpoint, as so many do. He looks at prophecy from a Middle Eastern standpoint. And from my perspective, I think that makes much more sense, looking at prophecy from a Middle Eastern standpoint and not from a European one. You know, when it comes to the Pope being the man of sin, I believe a lot of that started during the Reformation. You see, you saw a lot of hatred for the Pope, and rightfully so. But they came up with these cartoons and this idea that the Pope was the beast. Uh, I, I just don't don't see it, but again, as we 've already talked about, the Roman Church, I do believe may play a part, but in this in the sense of this woman. But again, this author, Walid uh, Shobat, he looks at it from a Middle Eastern standpoint, and according to him, he says that this seventh beast or this seventh king represents the Ottoman Turks, as we 've already talked about, it was the Ottoman Turks historically who conquered the Roman Empire. It was not the barbarians. It was not, it did not fall within. It's almost like saying, okay, the western half of the United States fell so that now the eastern half no longer continues. No, if that happened, the United States would still continue, but it would be through the eastern half. Same thing with Rome. The eastern half did not fall until the 15th century. Now, in verse 12, we find the Bible also speaks again about these ten kings. And let's read that. Revelation 17, 12 through 13. It says, In the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. So so see the connection. So Daniel says ten toes in in, in Daniel 2. Daniel 7 says ten horns. And here we see the ten horns or the ten toes are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet, will receive power as kings one hour with the beast. One hour probably represents a tribulation, or maybe the great tribulation. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So what is the purpose of these ten kings? Where it says here that they will give their power, they will give their strength. To who? It says to the beast. Who's the beast? Or the beast is a man of sin. The beast is the, the anti-Messiah. So we see here that the beast or these ten kings will support the man of sin. Now, do we know prophetically who these ten kings represent? Well, number one, it, to point out, it says that they're going to receive power with the man of sin. So I don't believe that these ten kings exist today in, in this state. They, they, they haven't risen to power yet, but they will because it says they will rule with the man of sin, or do we know who they represent? Or some will say, many will say, or they represent the European Union. Now, I don't, I've do not lost count, truthfully, I didn't look, but there's a lot more than 10 nations within the European Union. Last time I checked, it was like over 20, almost 30, I, I think. Many, many more than 10 nations, though, within the European Union. That doesn't fit. You know, many years ago, a man named, uh, actually he's a minister, Ralph Henry, introduced a, another possibility to my wife's late grandfather, uh, Elder Don Mansager, many of you may know him, and uh, he noticed that Psalms 83 refers to ten nations, and we see there that these ten nations will form a confederacy for one purpose, so let's read about that. Psalms 83, 4 through 8, it says, they have said, come, and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be no more in remembrance. So what, 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 what purpose do these ten nations have? What's the reason for this confederacy? So that the name of Israel may be no more remembered. That's the purpose. It says, for they have consulted together with one consent. In other words, are in agreement. They are confederate against thee. The tabernacles of Edom and the Ishmaelites of Moab and the Hagarenes, Gebel and Eman and Amalek, the Philistines, with the inhabitants of Tyre. Asher also is joined with them. They have helped the children of Lot. So notice here we see that there's ten nations. And again, they form a confederacy. And they do this to remove Israel from the map for the utter annihilation and destruction and extinction of the nation of Israel. You know, based on our study here, this confederacy has not occurred yet. I've looked at every commentary, everything I could find that would give any insight in this. And most scholars, they will say, you know, there's no historical reference to these ten nations specifically. Some will try to fit this into the Six-Day War, but again, it just doesn't really fit. So I believe that these ten nations are prophetic. Again, there's no historical ties, so they have to be prophetic from, from our standpoint. Where we believe here that these ten nations are possibly, very likely, the ten toes of Daniel 2, the ten horns of Daniel 7, and the ten kings of Revelation 17. So do we know where these nations are today? You know, we have an idea. I don't know if we know for sure, but we have an idea. So according to, and this is in the Restoration Study Bible, and Walid well, actually provides a very similar list in his book as well. He says, but uh, Edom would represent Jordan, southern Jordan, the Ishmaelites would represent Arabs, Hagarines. that was a uh, name for Egypt, Yebel, Lebanon, uh, Ammon, northern Jordan, Amalek, Sinai Peninsula, the Philistines, the Gaza Strip, Tyre, Lebanon, Asher, Syria, and Iraq, and Lot would represent possibly Jordan. So from this list, What do we find? Well, number one, we see that these are all Middle Eastern nations, right? All Middle Eastern nations. And we also know today that they're all Islamic nations. So we have ten Middle Eastern Islamic nations forming a confederacy for one purpose. And that one purpose, again, is that the name of Israel may may no more be remembered. That the nation of Israel will be annihilated and removed and wiped off the face of the earth. You know, I believe that we're seeing this already in this world, you know, with what we're seeing maybe with Hamas or Al-Qaeda or ISIS. You know, we don't hear that that much about those organizations, but believe me, they're still out there, and they're still very present, still very active. You know, what's interesting is that according to Walid Shobat, We actually see something very similar to this on the Islamic side. I want to share that with you, just a short quote here. He says, in 2002, a plan for the reestablishment of the caliphate was written by the Guider Helper Foundation entitled The Plan for the Return of the Caliphate. You see, they're making plans for this. Anybody who who believes that this is not going on is simply not paying attention. He says, according to the plan, the caliph would be assisted. And the caliph, by the way, that's the Islamic leader. That's the Islamic leader. It says a caliph would be assisted in his rule by a ten-member council of assistant caliphs. These assistants or council members are similar to ministers in many of today's governments. That's on page 91 of his book. So according to him, based on at least some Islamic tradition, they are looking for not only a caliph or this Islamic leader, but also ten assistant caliphs that would support him does that sound familiar does that sound like something we find also in the Bible? it does it's amazing that the parallels we find sometimes between islamic prophecy and biblical prophecy so we see here through prophecy that there's a good indication that the woman represents i believe again the roman church and there's good indication that the beast represents islam and again you know we saw in Revelation 17 that the woman rides on the beast. From my perspective, this shows that there is some sort of coalition, connection, agreement between the two. Now, I want to share one more scripture with you. I know, we're, you know it's been a, a while. Revelation 17, verse 16. We're going to close with this. It says, The ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast. You know, this is all imagery, by the way, the beast. It's not an actual, you've probably figured this out by now. It's not an actual beast. It's not actually horns. It's a kingdom. It's a kingdom. And the beast, again, represents the, the, the despot, that the man who will rule from the top, and these ten horns represents, again, the ten kings. It says that these shall hate the whore, this woman, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So we see here that these ten kings will... Eventually do what? We see here that these ten kings will eventually burn this woman with fire. These ten kings will turn upon the woman. So if the woman represents the Roman church and the city of Rome and the beast or the the ten kings, ten Islamic nations, what we see here is that there's going to be an agreement or a league or a coalition between, again, Islam and the Roman church. And at some point, these ten kings, these ten Islamic leaders, they're going to turn on the woman. They're going to turn on the church, burn her with fire, as we see in Revelation 18 in one hour, and will consume that great city. You know what's amazing to me is that we're already seeing again signs of some of this happening. I mean, I gave you the tip of the iceberg. There are there's so many recent events we could consider from the Roman Church and Islam, showing this, again, partnership, this coalition between the two. And I believe that they, that they, that they may continue possibly to, to embrace one another. But we also see prophetically that they, while they may embrace, we see here that it's only a matter of time until this coalition is broken. Well, I pray that this message has been a blessing to you again. You know, for me, this was a real eye-opener. It was an epiphany, if you will, and the concept that is not just radical Islam—that you can fit within that the Roman Church—and you can see how the two would coexist and support one another, one another, and yet, in the end, as we see here through this prophecy, the church will be destroyed. The city of Rome will be burned. You know, hopefully, I've. Um, what I've shared again but it has been edifying, has even sparked some interest. Maybe look into this a bit later. But you know, whatever the future holds, when it comes to prophecy, number one, we need to remember that we need to have an open mind. You know, so many people they are locked into something, you know, it has to be this. Or well, what happens if the scenario changes? And it can change. So I think, number one, as believers, we have to have an open mind. Number two, we need to prove all things. We need to look into every aspect. Number three, the most important obligation we have is not prophecy. It's not understanding who the beast is or this woman is. It's living to the standards of Yahweh's word and living according to his ways so that we will be found worthy when Yahshua comes. And that is our hope. So I pray that this has been a blessing again, and may Yahweh bless.